Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Given the prevalence of work from anywhere as a work arrangement now, it gives policymakers an opportunity to try to leverage this and attract to their communities, their regions, workers who can work remotely. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. So, Charles, before we get started, I think you have some news that you want to share with our listeners. I sure do, Stephanie. So this will be my next to last episode of Best New Ideas in Money. I've really loved working on the podcast, but time has come to step aside and let somebody else from the MarketWatch team take over. I'll be doing a little bit more writing for MarketWatch, which is my primary duty at the the publication. Well, I've had an absolute blast working with you, Charles. We will miss you. And I'm going to continue to read everything you write at MarketWatch. That's great. I appreciate that. I'm happy to say that my colleague, James Rogers, will be taking my place. James is a financial columnist at MarketWatch, and he has been covering money and technology for decades. So you're saying we're in good hands. Very much. And next week, James and I will co-host an episode about why many innovative projects fail and what these failures can teach us about taking meaningful risks. So, as always, stay tuned. Charles, if you were going to work from anywhere, where would that be? I'm going to say a place called Block Island. It's a island community in Rhode Island, very remote, very peaceful. I think it's the kind of place where you could really hunker down and do some really quality work in peace. What about you, Stephanie? That sounds pretty nice. Well, I mean, I live on the North Shore of Long Island, so it's pretty peaceful. I've got a lot of space. We have the water, but I guess maybe I would go somewhere where there are mountains, maybe, you know, a lot of nature, low humidity, nice hiking trails, maybe Colorado. So as you might have guessed, working from anywhere is the subject of today's episode. A few weeks back, we talked about the impact of remote and hybrid work on commercial real estate, cities, and even the economy. Put simply, what happens if people stop going to the office? Today, we're taking a look at another piece of this puzzle, which is, does remote work present an opportunity for cities and regions across the United States to compete for workers who can, well, work from anywhere? But first, when we say remote work, what exactly do we mean? First of all, it's really important that we distinguish remote work, which I will say is fully remote, from hybrid, from in the office. That's Johnny C. Taylor Jr., president and CEO of the Society for Human Resource Management, or SHRM. Remote work is where your full-time job is working away 
from an office. Hybrid, which has really become all the rage, is where you spend some portion of time in your employer's physical office space and another portion of time at wherever you'd like to work remotely. And then the obvious is the traditional in-office work environment. We're focusing specifically on fully remote work. So how many jobs does Taylor Jr. estimate will be fully remote in the near future? We believe the number is going to settle in somewhere between 12 and 15 percent, where people will be able to work remotely full time. We believe that's where we're going to settle. Obviously, none of us know, but that's our best guess. Estimates vary, and they're contested and debated. On the higher end, the freelance platform Upwork anticipates that as much as 22% of the United States workforce could become remote by 2025. But we're not there yet, and a more conservative estimate is roughly in line with Taylor Jr.'s. As of its most recent count in February 2023, Stanford University's monthly study on remote work found that 12% of workers were fully remote. But if we stick with Taylor Jr.'s range, 12 to 15 percent, that's between 20 and 25 million workers in the United States. That's a lot of fully remote workers. It really is, Charles, and it also means that 20 to 25 million workers are potentially up for grabs. To understand more about the race for talent this pool of jobs may create, we spoke to three academics who co-authored a study for the Brookings Institution about work from anywhere as policy. They looked at a program called Tulsa Remote, which we'll hear about later in the episode. Before we do, what's the new idea here? What does work from anywhere say about how the geography of work may be shifting? You know, for most of history, where workers live has been tied to the jobs that they have. That's Evan Starr, a professor of economics at the University of Maryland and one of the co-authors of the Brookings Report on Work From Anywhere as Policy. So if a locality wants to bring in a bunch of workers and jobs, historically, the main way to do that has been to try to bring in companies. Why do companies benefit cities and states? Well, two of the big reasons are they broaden the tax base and they bring jobs. And if you remember anything that happened before the COVID-19 pandemic, you might remember the big brouhaha over where Amazon was going to build its HQ2. Amazon's shopping for a second headquarters, bringing up to 50,000 jobs to the city the online retail giant selects. Amazon will feel right at home here. Of the nearly 240 bids from across America, the 20 finalists are mostly in the east and south, from big cities like Boston, Dallas, and Atlanta, to the midsize like Columbus, Raleigh, and Nashville. Cities and states across America compete with each other to lure corporations, typically by offering them valuable tax credits and subsidies or granting them other favorable treatment. And Amazon's HQ2 was the ultimate big fish, pitting cities against cities and states against states. Ultimately, Amazon settled on a new build in Northern Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C., and after a whole lot of controversy, leased additional space in New York City, where it had originally intended to build a large complex. And notably this year, after cutting thousands of jobs, Amazon recently paused construction of its Northern Virginia headquarters. The point is, with work from anywhere, how cities compete for jobs could be changing. Back to Star. In this day and age where we have these remote workers who can work from anywhere, who aren't tied to location, we can now separate the company from where they live. 
And so we can have these municipalities competing for the location of the individual while simultaneously having employers competing over their labor. So we've split this classic connection of where you work and where you live. And I think that kind of gave all of these programs, these work from anywhere as policy programs, uh, a boost. What exactly is work from anywhere as policy? Raj Chowdhury is another co-author of the Brookings Report, as well as a professor at Harvard Business School. Chowdhury studies the future of work, and in particular, how the geography of work is changing. Given the prevalence of work from anywhere as a work arrangement now, it gives policymakers an opportunity to try to leverage this and attract to their communities, their towns, their regions, workers who can work remotely. And this is especially salient for towns and cities and regions that have witnessed a lot of talent flight, brain drain, or have had problems retaining their own young workers. So I think if you can incentivize remote workers to relocate to your town, your city, or your region, then you are leveraging work from anywhere as a policy. Why is this important? For Chowdhury, it presents an opportunity. So in the case of the U.S., uh, the smaller towns in the middle of the country lose talent to the larger cities on the coasts. And this has been described as a chicken and egg problem. So if you were a mayor or a policymaker in one of these smaller towns, it's hard for you to try to convince companies to come and set up factories or offices or warehouses in your town because there's no talent. The talent is leaving. And it's also hard to convince your residents to stay back because there are no jobs. And so the argument we've made in the past is that remote work and work from anywhere breaks this chicken and egg problem because the remote workers come with their own jobs. In Chowdhury's view, it's a win-win. Remote workers bring their jobs and their higher salaries and spend money and pay taxes, which all benefits communities. And if some of these remote workers go on to start companies or open businesses, well, it's a new way of doing economic development. The incentives for cities and states are fairly clear, and as a result, the number of work from anywhere as policy programs is growing. Here's Tomas Tedorovich, a professor in the Department of Strategy and Innovation at the Copenhagen Business School. Tedorovich is the third and final co-author on the Brookings study. Right now, we know of more than 70 municipalities who have some type of relocation incentive programs, and they are distributed in several states, West Virginia, Maine, Vermont, Michigan, Iowa, Oklahoma, Alaska, Hawaii. You can see them spread out across all the country. And if we look internationally, in 2022, there are over 40 countries that started issuing digital nomad visas. Digital nomad visas are pretty much exactly what you'd expect them to be a type of visa that authorizes the holder to work remotely in another country. And in 2023, there may be more than 50 countries worldwide which offer some type of digital nomad visa. Although the United States doesn't offer digital nomad visas, Tedorovich believes that we'll be seeing more and more of these work-from-anywhere incentive programs. So we are seeing an increasing interest, and that has not diminished even after the COVID pandemic has started. We have seen a little. So my expectation is this will continue to increase to a certain extent. And right now we're just starting to explore what is the potential of working from anywhere as a policy. But wait a minute. 
If one of the inducements for workers is taking their big city salary and moving to a place with a lower cost of living, well, aren't companies going to eventually start to say, hey, I'm not going to pay somebody in Tulsa what I'd pay somebody in New York City. I'm going to adjust for cost of living. Let's go back to Johnny C. Taylor Jr., president and CEO of SHRM. It's actually being hotly debated right now is if, in fact, you should make cost of living adjustments for people who choose to work remotely. If one currently works in New York City and is going to move to Idaho, perhaps we should decrease your pay. Because if the opposite were occurring, if we were asking someone who lives in the Midwest to move to New York City, we would increase their pay. And thinking about these digital nomad visas, couldn't jobs done anywhere literally be done anywhere? Meaning, if I'm an employer, why would I pay an employee an American salary to work in a country with a much lower cost of living? It's not quite so simple, and there are meaningful business, labor, and tax implications to consider when employers weigh moving jobs abroad. But the point is, for employees, be careful what you wish for. Here's Taylor Jr. Well, that's precisely what happened to me as the CEO of Sherm. I had an employee who came in fully prepared, made a very compelling case for why her job could be done remotely, fully remotely. She wanted to go live in the Caribbean and she could do her work. She didn't really interact with her fellow colleagues, wasn't involved in innovation, et cetera. And so she could do it remotely. And I said, you know, you raise a really important point, but be careful because what you've actually done is convinced me that there is no value in me carrying you as a full-time employee, which includes benefits benefits, annual merit increases, et cetera, I could actually get your work done more cost-effectively going outside of the country. So while you're looking to work remotely, I'm looking for remote employees, including elsewhere on the globe. Would $10,000 convince you to move to Tulsa, Oklahoma for one year? Plus, we'll look at another side of the story, or what happens when a so-called Zoom town sees too much remote work too fast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com F-O-E-F podcast to secure your spot. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we considered how tens of millions of work-from-anywhere jobs could create a new way in which cities and states consider economic development. But what does this actually look like? Our next guest is Justin Harlan, Managing Director of Tulsa Remote, the program we mentioned earlier. 
So what exactly is Tulsa Remote? At its core, Tulsa Remote is a one-year program that offers a $10,000 grant and additional benefits to eligible remote workers who move to and work from Tulsa for a year. Wait a minute. So if you move to Tulsa for a year and bring your job with you, you get $10,000? How does this work? It's a fairly quick and easy process is our hope. You jump online, TulsaRemote.com, you submit your application. There's some basic eligibility requirements like having a full-time remote job, living outside of Oklahoma for at least the last year, and being eligible to work in the United States. And then if you do get invited to move to Tulsa through Tulsa Remote, you have a year to do so. You can move at any time. And when you're here, you let us know. You sign up for an orientation, and that's when we start really trying to help you get integrated into the city and get you connected to the events and connect you with other people. And the program is popular. According to Harlan, Tulsa Remote receives about 10,000 applications a year. We started off pretty small. Our cohort in that first year in 2019 was about 70 people. And then in 2020, obviously everything changed. We had about 350 people move to the city. And then that number grew to about 950 people in 2021. And last year we brought in just under 800. So all in all, we brought in over 2,300 people to the city thus far. And one of the things that we're probably most proud of at Tulsa Remote is the fact that about 90% of people that come to Tulsa through the program are staying beyond that year. Um, we have recently surveyed our alumni and know that about 75% of folks that have ever come through the program and have finished that year are still around in Tulsa today, contributing in meaningful ways and choosing to call it home. For context, the population of Tulsa is about 400,000. So who are these Tulsa remoters? 35 is the average age and $100,000 is the average salary. So we see, you know, people that are kind of within their career, they're not entry-level folks on average. And the biggest places we see those folks coming from are those big expensive cities like New York and LA and San Francisco and Austin, and really tapping into Tulsa as a place that has high quality of life at a low cost of living. It's not the same measure as average salary, but the real median household income in Tulsa was about $52,000, according to the Census Bureau. Stephanie, I've been thinking, 2,300 remote workers at $10,000 each. That's $23 million, not to mention staff like Harlan. Where's this money coming from? That's a great question, Charles. Here's Harlan. Our program is fully funded by the George Kaiser Family Foundation. It's a large philanthropic organization here in the city of Tulsa. And we also had some legislation passed recently at the state of Oklahoma that essentially incentivizes programs like ours to bring quality remote jobs to the state by reimbursing us up to $10,000 if somebody sticks around for a couple of years. So it's kind of paying for success that employer tax dollars that are coming with an individual to the state are then coming back to the program that brought that individual. According to a November 2022 story in Oklahoma's journal record, Tulsa Remote is expected to hit 5,000 jobs and $500 million in new local earnings by 2025. When we spoke, Harlan said they're on track to exceed those numbers. On the other hand, Tulsa has a significant poverty rate, 18%, compared to 11.6% nationally. And despite the low cost of living that Tulsa Remote advertises, Tulsa is itself in the grips of a housing crisis. We asked Harlan if some Tulsans have questioned why all of this money isn't being invested into programs that benefit those who need the help and who already live in Tulsa. 
I believe that both are necessary. In Tulsa, we need to continue to attract talented and diverse people to add to the incredibly talented and diverse folks that are already here, which will grow our city and grow the opportunities that exist in our city, which I believe raises the floor for everybody. And one of the beautiful things about working for a program that's underneath the George Kaiser Family Foundation is I see the annual budget and I know that Tulsa Remote is a very small sliver of that annual budget and the vast majority of the rest of that money is being spent at a local level. So we believe it's an important both and um, we can do both simultaneously and uh, we can do them both really well. In Harlan's view, it's really a different model of economic development. The traditional economic development approach has been you try to go after a company and you go all in and you invest, you know, incentives and you roll out the red carpet in hopes of them bringing, you know, hundreds of jobs with them. Our approach has been quite different. By going after the individual, instead of creating one basket that we're putting all of our eggs in, in the form of a company, in our case at Tulsa Remote, we've created 2,300 different baskets that all primarily have different employers. I think it really creates a less risky, far more differentiated approach to economic development that's rooted in an individual as opposed to a company. Stephanie, you're the economist. What do you think about this? Well, it makes a lot of sense, and it makes a lot of sense as someone who thinks about finance too, right? I mean, if you were building a portfolio, you wouldn't just put stocks from a couple of behemoth companies in there. You'd want to diversify your portfolio so it would be less risky, and that's what this feels like to me. Now, on the other hand, if too many remote workers suddenly descend on a city that isn't prepared for them, well, that can create a whole lot of problems. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Brian Geyer. I am the housing director for HRDC, the Human Resources Development Council here in Bozeman, Montana. The population of Bozeman, Montana is about 50,000 people, but Bozeman is growing fast. Bozeman during the pandemic was affectionately dubbed a Zoom town by a lot of national publications because quite frankly, it's a great place to be a remote worker. There's a lot to love outdoors, a lot of natural amenities that are really attractive to a lot of people. And it's also a really vibrant community. Bozeman is popular and it has been for a while, but during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, it got even more popular. And unlike a big city, a city of 50,000 people typically has far less capacity to absorb new arrivals, who put a strain on often already burdened resources like housing and infrastructure. That's right. Take housing, for example. In March of 2020, the median listing price in Bozeman was about $643,000. In January of 2022, it had shot up to $1.8 million. That's higher than Manhattan. No kidding. And although that number has since dropped, Today, it's still very high, nearly 1.3 million. Meanwhile, according to the Census Bureau, the median household income in Bozeman was about $67,000 in 2021. How did locals respond to this meteoric rise in the cost of housing? Here's Geyer. We were just in shock at what was going on, and our focus and the focus of a lot of our discussions was on that cost of a single family home and what are we going to do about home ownership opportunities for our workforce. But at the same time, probably the more difficult problem was the rapidly increasing cost of rental units. And that's, uh, that's something that has really had 
a profound impact on our local workforce. If you've watched the show Yellowstone, the fictional drama between longtime residents and new arrivals bears some resemblance to what's happening in Bozeman today. What does that look like? One of the things that kind of is in my purview is uh, homeless shelters. And we are seeing more and more of our guests who are working, uh, working multiple jobs. And so our staff are waking folks up at 4 a.m. to get off to their early shift. We're keeping our doors open late because they're coming home from the late shift. So in a real perverse sort of way, the shelter is workforce housing. But the housing affordability issue doesn't only impact lower income residents. We are seeing more and more people coming to the table to talk about housing solutions who aren't traditionally at the table. So these employers are losing this sort of middle management talent to other more affordable communities. And when that starts to happen, employers are finding themselves at the table saying, I have to have a viable business. And if I can't have housing for my middle management, then my business is not as viable as it may have once been. Despite these issues, the state of Montana has a major initiative called Come Home Montana. It aims to attract remote workers from anywhere, and especially to bring home Montanans who've left the state. Why? Well, in a state that was and still is struggling with brain drain, talent flight, or the flow of recent college graduates out of the state, the advent of remote work isn't necessarily a bad thing. Here's Geyer. So I try to think about it by considering the alternative. If we're not growing, then effectively our community is dying. And we see a lot of communities who were at one point pretty vibrant, smaller communities who are struggling to retain that vibrancy. So I really pause and I don't, and I hesitate to, to say that, you know, this is all a bad thing. If it were the alternative, of a brain drain, to borrow your term, if that was our other option, I'd much rather have the growth and the vibrancy that comes with people arriving in our community excited about being in a new place. For Geyer, it's important that remote workers think of their new home as not only a place that offers some of the best skiing in the world, but a place that needs their talents and expertise. What we aren't seeing yet is people who are newly arrived to our community rounding themselves out. And I don't know that we've done the best job of outreach and education to our newcomers to say, welcome to our community. You know, we can't wait to see you on the ski hill. We can't wait to see you out on the trails. But also, we got issues here. We're going through some major growing pains and you're very smart and you have a lot of resources that maybe haven't always existed in a place like Montana. Let's put those resources to good use. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Johnny C. Taylor Jr., Evan Starr, Raj Chowdhury, Thomas Tedorovich, Justin Harlan, and Brian Geyer. To learn more about remote work, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. 
The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Meta Lutzhoff, and Katie Ferguson. Michael McDowell mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Nathan Vardy was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.